industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. Dr. Joshua Bloom is going to speak with you about history of Barry Berry. So I'm Josh Bloom. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm coming from NYU in the New York City Poison Control Center. And I'm here to talk to you today about a favorite topic of mine. The title of my presentation is uh, Birds, Brains, and Berry Berry. And it's a brief history of thiamine. So I have no disclosures. So I want to talk about a person, first of all. And this person is uh, Christian Eichmann. Uh, so this is a man who was born in 1858 in the Netherlands. His father's name was also Christian Eichmann. Uh, his father was a headmaster, actually, at the local school. He was the seventh of 10 children. So growing up, Christian had a passion for science and medicine. But much like today, uh, medical education was expensive. And back then, the only way for a person without means to get an education in medicine was to join the army. And then the Department of War would pay for your education. So he attended the military medical school at the University of Amsterdam, and he graduated with honors. Uh, he earned a doctorate in physiology. His thesis was on the polarization of nerves, and he published that in 1881. So I also want to give a little background of the time and place we're talking about. This is the late 1800s uh, and the Dutch East Indies, where Christian Eichmann was sent for his first deployment. Uh, so the map on the right is the Dutch East Indies, which is modern-day Indonesia. And around that time, a disease called beriberi was spreading quickly in that region. Now, beriberi comes from a Sri Lankan word. So beri means weak, and it's repeated for emphasis because people who get this disease can become profoundly weak. The individual on the left picture is a typical sufferer of beriberi from that time period. You can see that he's relying on crutches to maintain a standing position. He looks like he has diffuse muscle wasting. So Dr. Eichmann was deployed to this region in 1883. And during his two year stay there, he was struck by the number of soldiers who were incapacitated with beriberi. And at the time they called the disease polyneuritis endemica perniciosa. Both natives and Western colonizers were affected by this disease almost equally. And you know, Dr. Eichmann came to a conclusion that the disease might be an infectious disease similar to tuberculosis, diphtheria, and cholera, which were all very prominent at the time. Unfortunately, he was not able to pursue his hypothesis because he fell ill with malaria himself. His wife also became sick and uh, she died in 1886. So he was, he was called back uh, to the Netherlands. And that's why I wanna start the narrative of our story. So the first scene of our story is gonna take place in a coffee shop where I think a lot of great science occurs. Uh, Dr. Eichmann was visiting Berlin, actually, after his recall to uh, the Netherlands, uh, because he wanted to study in the lab of Robert Koch, uh, who is the father of bacteriology and did landmark research on tuberculosis. So he was going to a local coffee shop in Berlin, and he asked them for a Dutch language newspaper. However, there were two gentlemen in the corner of the cafe uh, who were reading the only copy. Now, those men were these men pictured here. The one on the left is Cornelius Winkler, who was a neurologist. And the one on the right is Cornelius Peckelherring, a pathologist. And they were actually both in Berlin for the same reason as Dr. Eichmann. They were studying in the lab of Dr. Koch, and they wanted to learn more about infectious disease and bacteriology. Interestingly, both of these doctors were planning an expedition back to the Dutch East Indies to study beriberi, and in the hopes of isolating the bacterium that caused the disease. So Dr. Eichmann obviously had an interest in this already, and he was familiar with the tropics. So he was a natural addition to their party. 
Now, about a year into their expedition in the, in, in the Dutch East Indies, Dr. Winkler and Dr. Peckelherring were recalled to Holland. Uh, but when they left, they did request that Dr. Eichmann stay and continue their work. The Dutch government supported this, and they allowed Dr. Eichmann to fund a medical laboratory in 1888. Now, that building still stands today uh, in Indonesia, and it's the Eichmann Institute. Before they were recalled, the two doctors, along with Dr. Eichmann, were able to isolate microcoxi, or small bacteria, from the blood of beriberi patients. And they believed that this was the causative organism uh, that was causing beriberi. Their hopes were that if they could culture the organism, they could do testing on it and develop a treatment. And one of the challenges that Dr. Eichmann faced now that he was alone in doing this research was of finding a model to do their testing on. Uh, you know, dogs and rabbits were a very common animal model back in those times. Unfortunately, there was no evidence at the time that dogs or rabbits could get beriberi. Now, monkeys were available, and they had seen cases of beriberi or beriberi-like disease in monkeys. However, Dr. Eichmann tried to inject the microcoxi into, the monk, into a monkey uh, to induce the disease, and it did not induce the disease. And despite multiple other efforts, he was not able to generate a beriberi-like disease in a monkey model. However, a little bit of serendipity occurred, because around that time, one of Dr. Eichmann's lab assistants told him that several chickens in their facility were suffering from a polyneuritis, so a multiple, a multiple part of the body neurologic disease. Uh, they were developing weakness, inability to walk, inability to feed themselves. They did an autopsy on these chickens and they showed pathology that was very similar to human beriberi. So they thought that this could possibly be a similar disease, maybe even caused by the same bacteria. Dr. Eichmann called this disease polyneuritis gallinarum, which is polyneuritis of the hen house. Uh, the disease quickly spread among their chickens, and so that also suggested to them that if there was a bacteria causing this, it was highly virulent. Now, chickens that do have beriberi, or you know, at least their version of the disease, get a classical type of paralysis called epistotonos. So, and that's something you can see in this picture here, where the chicken's neck is bent back in a very uncomfortable looking position. And that's because their anterior neck muscles become weak. And that means they're unable to hold their heads, uh, you know, in a, in a normal position. They're forced to hold their necks in extension. The progression of the disease is pretty terrible. Their eyes crust over, the legs weaken, they lose the ability to walk, eventually to eat, and then they, you know, quickly die. So having a model at hand, Dr. Eichmann proceeded with some experiments. So for experiment number one, he took his isolated microcoxi, the small bacteria, and injected them into a group of chickens. And he had a control group that didn't receive the injection. However, all those chickens got sick. And so he was concerned that perhaps the injected chickens spread the disease to the ones that didn't receive the injection. So for his second experiment, he separated the chickens, and he also tried to inject whole serum from beriberi patients into his experimental group and compared it with a group of chickens that received no injection. But again, every single chicken got sick. And so he was concerned that there was contamination of his entire animal facility. And so you know, he was worried that despite his experiments, the chickens were receiving the bacterial contamination from another source. So for his third experiment, he cleaned his whole facility did a detailed clean on every bit of the, of, the, of the chicken house and repeated the experiment with the serum. 
Unfortunately, after the cleaning, no chickens got sick, even chickens that got injected with the micrococci. So this meant that something was wrong with his hypothesis. And you know, this is actually a quote from Dr. Eichmann in a speech he made later. Uh, the laboratory keeper, as I afterwards discovered, had for the sake of economy fed the chickens on cooked rice, which he'd obtained from the hospital kitchen. Then the cook was replaced and his successor refused to allow military rice to be given to civilian chickens. Thus, the chickens were fed on polished rice from 17th June to 27th November only. And the disease broke out on 10th July and cleared up during the last days of November. So, you know, Dr. Eichmann saw that, you know, even though he was doing his experiments by injecting the microcoxi, one thing that had changed that seemed to make a difference to the chickens was their feed and specifically the type of food that they were getting fed. When he looked back on his experiments, for the first two experiments in which all the chickens got sick, what were they being fed? They were being fed polished rice from the army hospital and all of them got sick at that time. But from November onward, when he did his third experiment after doing a deep clean of the chicken house, uh, they were being fed chicken fodder that was made of unpolished rice. And after that, no chickens got sick. So it seemed to him that possibly the you know, berry berry that he was seeing in the chickens was nutritional and not infectious. So what's the difference between polished rice and unpolished rice? So polished rice removes the husk bran and the germ of the rice, uh, which alters the flavor and also prolongs the shelf life. So it was conceived as a very useful way to store rice in that time. Now, Western colonizers introduced new technologies to finely polish rice, which completely removed the hull and produced a very visually appealing white product. And that was considered a finer food. So, you know, at that time, local populations in the East Indies were adopting this fancy new form of rice over the old form, which they called rough rice or red rice. This new white rice kept better in storage and was also more economical. So Dr. Eichmann did an experiment just looking at the diet of the chickens to see if that would produce a difference, produce you know, a change in, in the berry-berry-like syndrome he saw uh, in these chickens. So one group of chickens he fed entirely on polished rice and almost all of them got sick and most of them died. The other group was fed chicken fodder that was made of unpolished rice. And in that group, almost none of them got sick and none of them died. So this really suggested that there was something inside the rice that was preventing beriberi. And at the time he called it an anti-beriberi factor. So let's zoom forward. This is 1895. And the picture on the right is Dr. Adolf Vorderman. This is a Dutch physician who read some of Eichmann's correspondence and his published research. And he was concerned that maybe the beriberi that he was seeing in the prison population in the Dutch East Indies could also be attributed to a nutrient deficiency. So he conducted studies among prisoners. And you know, a lot of us would consider that unethical, but at the time prison studies were considered convenient because it was a population that could be controlled in terms of their lifestyle and their dietary habits. So he surveyed the prisons and the island of Java in the Dutch East Indies. And you know, of 100,000 prisoners that he surveyed that were consuming entirely unpolished rice, only nine of them developed beriberi. Of 150,000 prisoners who were consuming polished white rice as their staple diet, over 4,000 had developed beriberi. And of people who were consuming a mixture of the two rices, there was an intermediate number of beriberi cases. 
So on seeing these results, Dr. Vorderman was convinced that, you know, there's a difference in the rice. And if he changed the diet of these prisoners, he could prevent beriberi. He immediately moved to change the prison food supplies to the rough red rice. And after that, the cases of beriberi in the prison system in the Dutch East Indies plummeted. So Dr. Eichmann won the Nobel Prize in Physiology in 1929 for his work on the discovery of what they called the antineuritic vitamin or a vitamin that could uh, cure neuritis. He shared this Nobel Prize with uh, Sir Frederick Allen Hopkins, who also did work on uh, growth stimulating vitamins at the time, showing that there were more nutrients in food than just calories and protein. So this story doesn't just belong to Dr. Eichmann. And at that time, a lot of people were researching beriberi. And again, you know, most of the research world saw beriberi as an infectious disease, but there were a few people who thought of it differently. The person on the bottom left here is Dr. Kenihiro Tataki, a Japanese naval physician. And so 10 years before Dr. Eichmann's work in 1883, he found that protein-rich diets could decrease beriberi cases among a naval population. And he believed that protein was the essential nutrient that was preventing the beriberi. The person on the top right is Dr. Umitaro Suzuki. So in 1910, he, he created extracts of rice bran and gave them to beriberi patients. And he found that those extracts could cure beriberi and could prevent the development of beriberi. And the man on the bottom right I included is Dr. Casimir Funk, who was inspired by Dr. Eichmann's work and also inspired overall by the multiple vitamin deficiencies that were very prominent at the time. He's actually the person who coined the term vitamin. And that's because the molecule thiamine, so that's the molecule on the top left here, is an amine. And he thought that all of these compounds must be amines and they must be vital amines. So he termed them vital amines. He later determined their structures and that they were not all amines. So he shortened the term to vitamins, which is the term we still use today. So these stories are all from over a century ago, but beriberi is still prevalent today. In the first world, uh, you primarily see this among alcoholic patients who do not derive calories from fortified grains. You can also see this among persons at risk for poor nutrition, such as people who have had a bariatric surgery or people who are chronically ill. Since malnutrition is relatively rare in the United States and other areas in the first world, you know, beriberi can be missed or mistaken for another disease. But st and studies are continuing to indicate that we undertreat or, or under supplement for this easily preventable disease. So I think this is an opportunity for us to remember that healthcare workers especially should remain vigilant and always look for the symptoms of beriberi, especially among vulnerable populations. And the figure on the right is a summary of the symptoms of beriberi that you might still see today. There's a spectrum of dry beriberi, which is primarily a neurologic disease. And those patients experience difficulty walking, changes in sensation, neuropathy, difficulty moving their eyes and an altered mental status. And this can even progress to permanent neurologic deficits, coma and death. Now on the other end of the spectrum is wet beriberi, which is a primarily cardiovascular disease. And those patients get an enlarged heart, symptoms of heart failure, and peripheral edema, or peripheral swelling. So I think we all need to keep this disease in mind so that we can continue to make a difference uh, in this disease in our populations.